my dear brethren and sisters and young people. The few verses that we read there as an introduction tonight, chapter 30 and the first 10 verses, may appear to be just like any ordinary narrative of some event in Old Testament history. But as we're going to see tonight, it was really one of the major turning points in David's life. And the lessons that are to be learned from these few verses are really quite astonishing, as we hope to see as we go along. Probably be very wise at the moment if, before we go to further tonight, we uh, have a look at where we are, so that we'll know the background of the chapter that we're dealing with. Once again, we go back to our, our map with the uh, area of David's travels. A little bit closer here. Uh, you will recall that the Philistines have been meeting David, of course, being under the patronage of Amish, of Gad. The Philistines are marching way up. And they march off the top of the... What's it? The Philistines have gone right up the coastal plain, through the pass of the Yellow, and they're up here in the valley of Jezreel. They've come as far as Aiken. They're up here. And we saw in our last study that David is now rejected by the lords of the Philistines, which we believe was the hand of providence relieving him from an obligation that otherwise would have been totally beyond his capability to carry out. And so David is told to turn around and go in the other direction. So here we have the city that Achish had given to David, the city of Ziklag, down here. We'll find that the Amalekites, who mainly inhabited this area down here, south of the Medeb, right down here, even further south, and these areas across here, may now come dramatically into the narrative. So with that in mind, we can see where we are. The Philistines marching their armies up here for a final showdown with the armies of Israel. That was unquestionably their intention. We have seen in our past studies that the Philistines have made many incursions into the area of Saul's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. But this is no ordinary incursion. All the armies of the Philistines are now marshaled together and they intend to make out an all-out attack upon the army of Saul, the army of Israel, destroying it once and for all and, they hope anyway, taking over the whole of the land of Israel and thereby extinguishing the kingdom of Israel. So if we can just bear that in mind, we'll know where we are with the commencement of our study this evening. So we notice that the chapter begins with the words that it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. Now let's just imagine the setting of that opening verse. Can you imagine, as we saw in chapter 29, when Achish, very apologetically, finishes up saying to David, look, there's not a thing I can do about these other fellows. They won't shift, they won't move. They won't have you in our army. Meaning, of course, that he would have gone away to fight against and slaughter his own brethren, the children of Israel. And you can imagine their sigh of relief when they finally learned that they would not be permitted to go to the Philistines. And then they're told to return and go back down south to their city of Ziklag. You can imagine the feeling of these men who were with David, 600 of them all told. You can imagine them sighing with relief. You can imagine them turning their 
faces southward to return to their wives and their children and their families and, uh, and the things that they had. And you can imagine the incredible relief that would descend upon them and the way in which the tensions would flow away from them because for several days they'd been under incredible tension wondering what on earth they could do to avoid this terrible predicament which they had got themselves into and for which David was responsible. The others were men who were loyal to David and they had followed David in these ventures. But David was the man who had made the great mistake. Remember the key verse to all of this is chapter 27 and verse 1. We turn to it again and again and we'll be turning back to it again a little while this evening, a little bit later on. But you can imagine the feeling that they would have, all the tensions falling away, the armies of the Philistines heading north for their final showdown with Israel, something about which David and his men could do nothing, as they turned in the opposite direction and went south. Perhaps they were even feeling light of heart as they made their way southward down toward Ziklag. Perhaps they felt comforted that all was now well. But of course, as the very first verse of that chapter shows us, they were in for a dreadful shock. A most frightening experience awaited them. In other words, what they were going to find was that although they had escaped out of the hand of the Philistines and any obligation to them of a warlike nature against their own brethren, they were still going to pay a price for their folly. They were going to pay a price for their folly. So here we find that David is in the situation where he's not only going to pay a price for the foolishness that he had allowed himself to be led into, all because he talked with himself, as it says in chapter 27, verse 1, and he did not turn to Yahweh at that hour of crisis at that time in his life. And what was going to happen now was something that could very nearly have cost David his own life, as we shall see in these verses uh, this evening. So we find that David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, which might seem rather strange. We need to remember that from Aphek down to Ziklag was a distance of approximately 47 miles. And that was quite a long journey for an army of 600 men in those days. And the terrain over which they would have to uh, negotiate, most of it of course, uh, in the long term, they would come down the coastal plain the same way as they would have gone up. Nevertheless, we can understand that it would have taken them three days to cover that journey. And it is incredible to think that on the very day that they began their journey southward, was the day that the Amalekites destroyed their city and took their people captive. On the very day. And we must understand that providence works in many ways. Fortunately, none were killed. None were slaughtered of David's people. But they didn't know that. They were not to know that. They had no earthly idea. And so the verse goes on to tell us that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and burn it with fire. Why does it specifically say, of all those towns and villages and cities in that southern area, that it specifically mentions Ziklag? Well, the reason is, of course, because the Amalekites owed David a favour. In chapter 27 and verses 8 and 9, remember us studying these words, and David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites 
and the Gezrites and the Amalekites. For those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land, as thou goest to Shur, even unto the land of Egypt. And David smote the land and left neither man nor woman alive and took away the sheep and the oxen and the asses and the camels and the apparel and returned and came to Achish. The Amalekites owed David something for that. But in actual fact we can go back even further because if we keep a hand in chapter 30 and come back to chapter 15, do you remember the incident that we studied very early on then, I think our very first study, the incident that got Saul into so much trouble with Samuel, where in chapter 15 and in verse 2 and 3, we read, Thus said Yahweh Sabaoth, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go, Saul is instructed, and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, cattle and ass. So you see, the Amalekites had a great and a very healthy hatred for Israel and the people of Israel. But now at this particular time, right now, they have a special hatred for David and his city of Ziklag. So what they intended to do was to exact a terrible retribution. But in any event, we should note that the Amalekites were those sort of people. They were a warlike, plundering people. And that's how they survived and that's how they lived for century after century. And it's not difficult to realise that they would have taken full advantage of the fact that the Philistine armies were absent from their towns and their cities. The Amalekites well knew what was going on. Now, of course, here is where the first of these very powerful lessons comes upon us tonight. And it concerns David himself. You see, he had taken his action of moving over to the land of the Philistines for the second time because he had allowed himself to believe that he would one day perish at the hand of Saul. Chapter 27 and verse 1, once again. So he tried to avoid that calamity in his own way. As we saw there, that he talked to himself, as the Hebrew wording indicates. And he decided the only thing to do was to go back to the Philistines again. So he thought that he would avoid that calamity of being destroyed by Saul by going again over to the Philistines. He would settle that matter and save himself in his own way. But here's the point. His action in that regard did not ensure that disaster would not come upon him from an altogether different source. And you know, that can happen to us. And sometimes it does. We get ourselves into a very delicate situation. And perhaps because of the urgency of the circumstances, or whatever it might be, perhaps lack of faith at that particular moment, we work out how we're going to handle that situation. We've seen this several times over in David's experiences. We work out how we're going to handle that situation. And somehow or other, we do this, we do that, we manipulate this, we do that, and it works out, I mean, oh, that's all right, we fixed that up, isn't it marvellous? And then from some totally unexpected quarter, 
We are slain with something else. And all of that is teaching us, brethren and sisters, that we can't do things without Yahweh. If we say that we believe in the God of Israel, that we believe that faith in Him is essential, and that He indeed sends His angels to encamp around them that fear Him, Psalm 34 and verse 7 again, and delivereth them, if we say that we believe that and then act contrary to that, then we're asking for some kind of trouble. You see, to do that is almost like a form of distrusting Yahweh. We would never ever admit to that. David would never have admitted to that in chapter 27 and verse 1. But when we go under our own steam, when we are faced with a crisis of life, a crisis in particular, a challenge, whatever it might be, a difficulty, a problem, and we, we decide that we will go about that, we will find the answer to that problem. The very fact that we do not consult our God, that we do not seek His guidance and His direction, is in effect distrusting Yahweh. Because we trust only ourselves. So you see, implicit faith and trust in God has got to be our course of action in every trial and every difficulty in life. David's learned that now, as we shall see in a moment. And it's because we are very often weak in regard to matters of that nature that it sometimes requires a devastating blow to make us aware that we've been showing a, a complacent confidence in our own wisdom, in effect, as David was doing in chapter 27 and verse 1, that had brought all this about and caused all this havoc which should never have taken place at all. And there's no doubt this is the sort of blow that David received at this particular time. See, all his trust had been in his own judgment and, of course, in his friendship with the Philistines, with whom he should have had no friendship whatever. And can you imagine them arriving there, coming over the crest of a hill or round the corner of the pass in a valley, and there before them are the burnt-out ruins of Ziklag, the city burnt to the ground, Smoke probably still ascending in some parts of it, and not a soul in sight. Nobody there. Can you imagine the effect that that would have? And as it gradually comes in upon David with a cold, chilling reality that in trusting in his own judgment and in trusting in his friendship with Achish and the Philistines, he had been trusting in an illusion. An illusion, something that's not real. And now he lost all his family, all his property, and he didn't know whether they were alive or dead. He had not tied himself fast to God. And now he begins to realise the enormity of his past foolishness. So we see what happens. In verse 2, they have taken the women captive. It does say, just before that, in verse 1, that the Amalekites had invaded the south. The word rendered south there is the word Negev. And you'll recall that we saw on our map that that lower part of the land of Israel is known to this very day as the Negev, because it's in the south. So really, it doesn't simply mean the south. They had invaded the area known as the Negev. 
and Ziklag, you'll notice as we said, is mentioned in particular. They had a special mission, these bloodthirsty Amalekites, so far as Ziklag was concerned, and they burned it with fire. And verse 2 goes on, they had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. Now they slew not in, which is very, very unusual. It's not what David did. They didn't slay any. We might ask, well, why would they have acted in that way? Well, looking at the, the question purely from a, a physical point of view, there would have been no need to slay anybody. Because all the men were away. There was no army to fight with. There was no fight. There was no war that took place. No fighting at all. With the men away, and the towns and the cities virtually undefended, all the Amalekites would have had to have done is to go into the city of Ziklag, round up all the women and children, all the cattle, all the goods, pillage the whole place, drive them out as captives, and then set fire to the whole place and burn it to the ground. That's all they had to do. There was no resistance. And of course, remember that all the men that had come over the course of time to join David, it says specifically that they had brought their households with them. So there were many, many families there, many wives, many sons, many daughters. And just imagine the blow it would have been to all those men to return to Ziklag and find them all gone. And there's another reason. Remember, in the south there, they weren't really all that far from Egypt. And historians tell us that at that particular time, there was a great demand for slaves in the land of Egypt. They were fetching a very, very good price. Slaves were really a very good investment if you could round up a few. So by taking them captive and not destroying them, the Amalekites were not showing any mercy because they were not a merciful people. But they would be useful as slaves, these people whom they had captured. And they could be used or they could be sold, particularly in that very lucrative market, market not very far south, in Egypt. But all that aside... There is another reason that is far more paramount that they were not slain. The same reason as why on the very day that David turned away from the Philistines and headed south while they went north, thinking that now he's off the hook and everything's over and everything's been solved and there are no more problems, on that very day was the day that the Amalekites attacked his city and took his people. And therefore, the reason why they were not slain why their wives and children were not slaughtered was because the hand of providence was still at work. The hand of providence was still at work and it was the hand of providence that saved them and preserved the lives of those people. Keeping your hand in there, let's just go briefly to Matthew chapter 10. And notice the comment that the Lord makes, which is a reminder for our own day, our own times, and the fact that faith is something that we talk about as uh, our brother Gavin uh, uh, indicated to us, that it's got to be something real. It's got to be living. Faith is not theoretical. Faith, as we've often said, is something that we prove by what we do as well as what we say. Faith has got to be a living faith. And in Matthew chapter 10, and verse 29 to 31, remember where the Lord says here, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them will not fall on the ground without your father? Meaning, of course, without your father knowing about it, seeing it, being aware of it, 
Why should God be interested in a sparrow? That is not really the point, is it? The point is that nothing escapes the all-seeing eye of Almighty God. The ale of Israel. And in verse 30 he goes on to say, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not therefore, deer are of more value than many sparrows. It's very comforting, isn't it, to know that. That doesn't mean, of course, that we're going to go into the kingdom of God getting an armchair ride on a magic carpet all the way to the kingdom. The Lord is not saying that. What he is saying is that God is very conscious of all his children, of all his people. He was in the days of David. You can go right back to the dawn of history, and he was then, right throughout all the ages. He has been ever conscious and aware of his people. And he was so here, and he preserved those families. And so in verse 3, David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. And can you imagine with what stunned disbelief they would have contemplated the state of loss and ruination that confronted them? It was totally unexpected and totally unanticipated. And you know, brethren and sisters, that's very often when a great trial suddenly hits us and very often almost poleaxes us. Suddenly, out of nowhere, we face a trial or a difficulty or we receive some very bad news that has to be grappled with. And we have to meet the challenge of that trial, whatever it might be. And we can imagine these men standing there for a time absolutely numbed at what they see. And you see, very often our own state of mind will make it harder to accept something like that. As we've already seen, we can readily imagine those men, when they receive the word from Achish, sorry that you will not be marching with the Philistines, they won't have you. And inwardly they think themselves, oh, isn't that... You know, what a remarkable thing. We're off the hook. I mean, turning south. I mean, light hearts. And in a state of joyful anticipation, we're going home then, is what David would have said in them. We're going back to our wives and our children. When they get back there, there's nothing. The city's gone. The people have gone. The wives, the children, the animals, everything, gone. So you see, we can lull ourselves day by day in life into a very inadvisable sense of false sense of security. That everything is well. Everything is going well. And we anticipate that everything will continue to go well. Which is like saying, although we would never admit it, that our faith is not going to be tested today. Because the sun is shining and we have some money in our pockets, and there's food in the larder and in the refrigerator, and we've got a roof over our heads. We have no problems in life, all we have to do is get through the day. You know, brethren and sisters, it is always a very, very wise thing to start every day, as soon as the day begins, to start the day with prayer. And to start the day 
by offering unto Yahweh the incense of praise and honour and glory and recognising him for who he is and what he is, his greatness and his majesty and our total and utter dependence upon him and to pray to him that he might oversee our lives throughout the coming day that we now face. And that whether it be for good or for ill, according to his will, that he will be with us. You see, that's an attitude of mind that will help to prepare against sudden tragedy or trial or tribulation. But if we have a carefree attitude toward life day by day, feeling that all is well, and many times I've learnt this lesson myself the hard way, believe me, I'm speaking of personal experience, I'm not talking about theories, I'm talking about personal experience. I think we'd all do the same thing too, couldn't we? But you see, if we have that frame of mind and we learn from those things, from those failings, that we need at the very beginning of every day to acknowledge the God whom we worship and ask that he might be with us throughout the day, whatever his will might be for us, that he might still remain with us. And so these men were unprepared to see what they had to accept. And so in verse 4 it goes on to say that David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. They wept. They wept indeed. It says they wept until they had no more power to weep. The Jerusalem Bible renders it till they were too weak to weep anymore. And that is quite physically possible. That is quite physically possible. They wept until they were so weak physically that they could not weep anymore. They wept themselves into a state of exhaustion. And we can understand that. But they were weeping for their losses. Not knowing whether their wives and their children were alive or dead whether they'd been tortured, whether they'd been massacred, whether they'd had their arms and legs cut off in retaliation for all that had come upon them. They didn't know where they were or what had happened to them. They wept because of that. But do you know something, brethren and sisters? It's extremely doubtful that they wept for the folly of their earlier ways that had got them into this situation. Here they are with an appalling reversal of fortunes. And their relief is now turned to despair. But really, they should have wept, not only for their loss, they should have wept for their past folly that had got them into this situation. And their further folly in accepting the fact that having been relieved of any obligation by the Philistines and told simply to turn around and go home, that it was all over, that they had no more trial to face, that everything was fixed. Didn't work that way, did it? As far as David was concerned in verse 5, we learn that David himself suffered personal loss. 
his two wives were taken. He was personally touched by all this. And in verse 6 it goes on to say that David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him. David was greatly distressed. And that word contains an incredibly powerful exhortation. The Hebrew word there, the word yotsar, it's spelled simply Y-A-T-S-A-R, is a word which means to press or to narrow. A bit if you can imagine, for example, five lanes of traffic, all busy lanes of traffic, and you often find this in the city of London, as a matter of fact, that's what just suddenly brought it to my mind. And it's the most fearful, frightening experience. You're tearing around tiny little streets in taxis, in a taxi, and you'll find you're in five lanes of traffic, and all of a sudden, these five lanes have got to narrow down to two. And it's a question of who's going to give way to who, because it's got to go. Five have got to go into two. That's the idea of that word, to narrow, to press. Now remember, this is one of the lowest points ever reached in David's life. And that is why, of this particular word, Yesenia says that the primary, the first meaning of this word is to form or to fashion as a potter does the clay. Now you might say, well, what's the connection between that and the idea of pressing or narrowing? Well, really, there is a very sublime relationship, surely. Because when the potter takes the clay, it's got to be malleable in his hand. It's got to be the right mixture. It's got to be the right strength. But then the potter goes to work on that clay and he narrows it or he presses it or he confines it within certain limits. Maybe he's got a lump of clay that's like a round ball and he wants to make it into a fairly narrow vase on his wheel. Imagine him shaping and pressing that clay in but it's got to be formed according to the requirement of the potter. It's an astonishing word. And from the idea of the work of the potter on the clay, the word came to mean to be straightened or to be narrow. Very incredible. So here is David undergoing one of the greatest trials of his life. And we learn that he was being put under pressure. He's being put under pressure at the hands of a master potter that his character might be formed and fashioned by the great master Paul. And you know, we should never ever get very far away from the words of Paul in Acts 14 and verse 22, which we've quoted many times in this class, when he says that it is through much pressure, the A.V. has tribulation, but the word is philipsis, and it means pressure. Paul says we must through much pressure into the kingdom of God. We must, and the word means that. There's no other way. Our faith has got to be tried. Our faith has got to be put to the test. And the only thing that does that is pressure. And remember Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 5 and verses 3 and 4 when he says, we glory in pressure. Again, the word is ellipsis. We glory in pressure, knowing that pressure work of patience. A word that means a remaining or abiding under. A willing bearing up under the pressure. Pressure work of patience, says Paul. 
and patience, experience. And experience, hope. Where would we be without any of those things? We need them all. And the only one that has perhaps a great deal of appeal about it is the word hope. We're all too happy to have hope. But are we prepared to undergo the pressure? Are we prepared to undergo remaining under the trial, bearing up under it? Are we prepared to learn to exercise patience in all the trials and the tribulations of life? Are we prepared prepared to learn from the experience, as Paul says, and all of that leads to hope? And so the process of salvation, really, is dependent upon us responding willingly under the guiding hand of the Master Potter when he causes pressure to be come to bear upon our faith that we might be tested, but not only tested, in the testing that we might be shaped and moulded according to something that will reflect to his glory as the maker of it. Because it is only through surrendering our will to the will of the Master Potter that we are going to be shaped according to his requirement. And that's the very thing that David had been fighting against in these recent chapters from chapter 27, verse 1. On throughout all these incredible circumstances in which he had found himself. So you see, all of these things are relevant. And finally, we might use that word pressure as it occurs in Revelation 7 and verse 14. Where, remember there that uh, John says of those who are going to be the redeemed, that these are they which came out of great pressure. Again, the word is tribulation in the AD. But it doesn't meet the requirement of the word. These are they which came out of great pressure and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is the lesson being brought home to David and to the men that were with him. What a tremendous lesson David was learning. How he was being put under pressure to be formed and fashioned by the great potter, to be prepared for an eternal inheritance in the kingdom. And how too we should learn these same principles as David and all the other worthies of old down through the centuries of time have all had to learn the same things. We're no different to them, they were no different to us. The experiences vary, the environment varies, the day and the age, the generation, the state of the world, it all varies. But nevertheless, the trials are no different. Because the trials involve overcoming the flesh to the glory of the Father. And that's what it's all about. And you see, David was especially deeply distressed because these men who had been so loyal to him, as it says there in verse 6, the people spake of stoning him. Now that is a natural reaction of the flesh. They had to blame somebody. See, in a certain sense, although David had to accept the responsibility for all that had happened, they had followed him. But we always have to blame somebody, don't we? As long as it's not us. That is a natural reaction of the flesh. So we learn in the sixth verse that David's loyal men turned against him because they had suffered personal loss. In effect, they mutinied against David. 
and that hurt him very, very deeply. So up until now, since coming to the territory of the Philistines, David had used various wiles and deception, as we've seen in some of these other uh, studies. He can't do anything about that. So here is David now, in verse 6, brought to a state of total and utter helplessness. And that's what he needed more than anything else right now. He could do nothing to save himself. He could do nothing to save all the men that were with him. He could nothing to, do nothing to save his family or the families of all the other men, that the families that have been lost as well. So there he was. To whom could he turn? Well, there was only one, wasn't there? He had felt that he had a confident haven in Ziklag, but now it's a burnt out, desolate, desolate ruin. So, it may be that David looked back on the past a little bit, that he thought, for example, about his father Abraham, and how Abraham had put his confidence for the future in a city whose builder and maker is God. Not the Philistines. And that's a reference that we quoted from Hebrews 11 and verse 10. You see, here is David with this wonderful haven called Ziklag, a city built by the Philistines. David thought that he was going to go back there with every confidence. But let's hope that at this stage he remembered Abraham, who dwelt in many cities during the time of his pilgrimage. But above all else, he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Now, with that in mind, let's just have a look briefly at Psalm 73, keeping a hand in there where we are, and let's see this experience also shown in the experiences of Asaph. We have here a Psalm of Asaph in Psalm 73. You know, Psalm 37 very interesting in a way, the way they numbered in our Bible, 73, or turn the other numbers about and make it 37. Those two Psalms are almost identical in their content, in the concept of what they're about. Now you notice what we have here in Psalm 73 and verses 3 to 5. How the flesh can rise up, how we can envy the prosperity of the wicked, how we can look upon the Gentile world and say, look what a good time they have. Look at all the money they make. Look at the enjoyments they have. And here we are, we've got a hot day or a cold night, we've got to get rugged up or we've got to go out in the heat, we've got to go to the meeting and this and that and the other. But those people, they don't care. They hop in their boat, off they go or wherever they go. But look at verses 3 to 5 here. I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's what David had seen among the Philistines. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. What a delusion to be taken in by that and to become friends of the Gentile world and all that they have to offer. But look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein if you link up those verses, you'll find there's a common link there. You see, it's only by coming to Yahweh and turning to the Word 
and appealing to God for help and guidance and direction and listening to his voice that brings us to a state of sensibility so far as all the values of life are concerned. And this psalmist says, until he was, going, he was thinking all these foolish thoughts, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And finally here for the moment in verse 25, he says ultimately, as this psalm draws to a close, he says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And then look at these words. And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. What is he doing now in verse 25? He's looking on the earth. He looks up to heaven. He says, There is none in heaven I desire but thee, and there is none upon earth. So upon earth this man, who has now been into the sanctuary of God, has communed with Yahweh, has restored his faith and his faithfulness, he now looks upon the earth, and he looks everywhere upon the earth, he sees the wicked, he sees the ungodly, he sees the Gentile world about him, and he sees them all, but he doesn't see them. He says, there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Tremendous lesson, really. Absolutely tremendous. So with that in mind, they're all learning this. And back in chapter 30 of 1st of Samuel, we'll find that it says that whereas the people spake of stoning him, it goes on to say in that sixth verse that the soul of all the people was grieved. And here again is a great lesson that he learned. You see, David is starting to come to his senses now, as we shall see in a very few moments. David is starting to really getting his senses and his values back into a proper order. But as far as the men are concerned, it says that they were, they were about to stone David because the soul of all the people was grieved. Notice the way the margin rendered it. The margin is better. The soul of all the people was bitter. And so it is in various renderings. Rotherham has the soul of all the people was embittered, which is perhaps a little stronger. They have become bitter. Why should they become bitter? They have just been light of heart, joyful, feeling comforted. All the trials and the problems were over and suddenly, wham! They turn a corner and there is the burning ruins of Ziklag and their wives and their children gone. You know, brethren and sisters, there are probably two things that will be more destructive in our lives than any other things you care to name. One of those is pride. And the other is bitterness. And the reason why they are so destructive is because they eat away at us. In a way, one is the reverse of the other. But here we're dealing for the moment with bitterness. You know, bitterness can destroy a spiritual life. A person can be a regular attender at the meeting and a supporter of the affairs of the ecclesia and yet secretly within their heart be eaten out with bitterness. And if you don't think that's right, just look at the life of Ahithophel. 
a man who was responsible for teaching David a lot of the deeper things that he learned about the truth. Ahithophel was a man of the truth, and yet year after year after year, although nobody sought out relief, he was eaten out with bitterness, eating away at him, inside. We must never, ever allow ourselves to become bitter in our lives in the truth. It doesn't matter what happens to us. Sometimes perhaps we may feel that we are very, very, uh, we suffer severely at the hands of our brethren, perhaps in an unjust way that it should not be. We have to learn to live with that and accept that because the great judge will sort that out in due time. And maybe in some certain respects we are ourselves at fault in regard to the creation of some of those situations. But never ever let us become eaten out with bitterness. It will destroy us. We may go through all the emotions of going to the meeting, of, of doing all sorts of things, being active in the truth, but if bitterness is work within us, it will eat us out and eventually it will destroy us. In actual fact, bitterness, when it grows and takes root, is in effect denying the power of the truth. That's what happens if we allow bitterness to dominate us. And these men have turned from joy and comfort and, uh, and joyful anticipation to a state of bitterness and anger. And they had to blame someone. And you see, the final lesson to be learned from that expression is the fact that their minds were not on Yahweh. Actually, the people spake of stoning him. The soul of all the people was bitter, filled with bitterness. Who were they looking at? David. There's the one. He's the one who's responsible for all this. Their minds weren't on Yahweh. But David's mind was. That's the point. Look at the next words there in verse 6. But David encouraged himself in Yahweh his God. And that itself, right there, right at that very point, is one of the greatest turning points in David's life. At that great moment of crisis, what did David do? Did he turn around and argue with his men? Did he plead with them? Did he say, look, don't leave me, don't kill me, let's try and sort this out and see what we can do? He took the exhortation of the very environment in which he found himself and saw, as we made the point earlier, his utter helplessness. There was nothing he could do. There was only one to whom he could turn. Did he run back to Achish and say, look, something terrible has happened. The Amalekites have come. Hey, the Ziklag's been burned to the ground. What am I going to do? Did he do that? Here is the real character of the man David. Facing the anger and the bitterness of his own men who previously had been loyal to him, who were on the verge of stoning him to death, he turned to his God. He shows us now that all these experiences that we've seen, David, not in his best light, in these recent chapters, chapter 27 and 28 and so forth, not in his best light at all, we see here that at heart he really is a man of God. He really is a man of faith. And when it says that he encouraged himself in Yahweh, it is a most magnificent word. A most magnificent word. It means to tie fast, to bind bonds strongly, 
it reminds us of what was done to the offering that was placed upon the altar. But even that aside, here is David now determined that he's going to tie himself to Yahweh. Imagine someone with a pair of, of uh, uh, handcuffs and someone that they do not wish to be part of them at all and they clip one handcuff onto, onto somebody's left arm and the other one on their right arm and they're joined together. And one can pull one way, the other one's got to go. One may pull the other way, the other one's got to go. Whatever. But you see, here is the idea and the concept of this word, to tie fast, to bind bonds strongly. And so this is what it means. One version rendered it, but David relied on the eternal his God and took courage. And as we said, this is one of the greatest turning points in David's life. He looks all back upon everything that's happened since he made that foolish decision as recorded in chapter 27 and verse 1, unthinking, not allowing for God to be in his, uh, in his thoughts at that particular moment, making his own decisions, deciding that he's going to get himself out of this mess. He's going to handle this his own way. But no longer. He's seen all of that. Now he's brought to Ziklag, a desolate ruin, burnt out, the people gone. And he turns himself to his God. He receives the rod of correction, brethren and sisters. That's what he does. In all humility, he receives the rod of correction. And you know how important that word is? You know how we read of Absalom in the second of Samuel, chapter 18, and verse 9. But when he got that beautiful head of hair caught fast in the tree, and it didn't matter what he did. He shook it, he jumped, he leapt up and down. He could not get away from the way in which he'd been entrapped by the head in that tree. It's exactly the same word. Caught fast. It's rendered there in the second of Samuel 18 and verse 9. And you know where we read in Exodus 7, verse 13, is one verse, but there are other passages where it occurs as well, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's exactly the same word. So you see, in the case of Absalom, it's used in a physical sense. There was nothing he could do to break that bond. In the case of Pharaoh, it's used in a spiritual and a moral sense, hardening and setting his heart against Yahweh. But in David's case here, it's exactly the opposite. Here he is tying himself fast like a sacrificial offering to Yahweh, as though with a determination, I am never ever going to let myself be parted from my God again. I will stay close to him. I want to be bound with him. Like Noah, I want to walk with God. And so look at verse 7. David said to Abiathar, bring me hither the ephod. And what a joy it is to read those words. What a joy it is to read those words. You know, never once is Saul recorded as having given this command. There's a kind of an allusion to something in chapter 28 and verse 6. But even then, remember, Saul didn't have any priest because he had killed them all apart from Abiathar and he had no ephod. And as far as David is concerned, do you know we have not heard David issue this command since chapter 23 
and verse 9. A long time back in our studies, when David and his men were to rescue the town of Kila. Remember that in chapter 23 and verse 9? And consider how much has happened since then. But now David's mind goes back. He's reorientated his thinking upon sound spiritual lines. In effect, we might bring Psalm 121 and verses 1 and 2 into this very narrative. And so David asks, as he does in that psalm, From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from Yahweh, which made heaven and earth. Magnificent words. Words of a man driven by faith, motivated by hope, living in trust and confidence in his God. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from Yahweh, which made heaven and earth. So you see, the full effect of the calamity having come home to David, he now felt self-condemned, and rightly so. He felt humiliated, and rightly so. And he knew not what was best for the future. For once now, after a period of being astray from what had been his guiding principles of life, he now says to Abiathar, bring me here to the ephod, he's going to ask Yahweh. Because he's brought to a situation where he doesn't know what to do for the best. He's got no earthly idea. So again the Psalms come to us. Psalm 55 and verse 22. Cast thy burden upon Yahweh and he shall sustain thee. There's the real David. There's the real man of faith. That's the essence of a man. Cast thy burden upon Yahweh and he shall sustain thee. Psalm 55 and verse 22. And you know, brethren and sisters, every day of our lives, with every new day that begins, it is always needful for us to understand our own helplessness. We're always helpless, really. We can do things. We can cook food. We can dress ourselves. We can go to work. We can do a job. We can earn money. But as far as the issues of life and death are concerned, there's not one of us in this hall tonight that can say with assurance that we will still be among the living upon the earth at this time tomorrow night. Who can say that? Where is our confidence? Where is our ability to guarantee or to say to one another, I can guarantee to you that 24 hours from now you can come and see me and I'll be glad to see you. No one can do that. We are entirely dependent upon Yahweh in every sense. And so here is the ephod. The ephod is brought. And we should remember that it fitted around the shoulders of the high priest. And there was a hole in the top that admitted the head. And it was held in position by straps. And let's remember that it was made of blue and gold and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen. We're told in Exodus 28 and verse 40. The blue speaks of a class of people who have their minds ever upon the heavens. The throne of Yahweh, their God. The gold represents the faith by which they walk. The purple represents the royal house of Judah, among whom they hope to be numbered, among the governors of the world in the age to come. 
The scarlet is a reminder to them of their sinful state and the nature that they bear and therefore their total dependence upon Yahweh. And finally, the fine twined linen represents their attempt to day by day live according to the righteousness of Yahweh. And remember that into the ephod were fitted the onyx stones, one on each side, each engraved with the names of the six tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes there. And here we have Abiathar bringing it. And remember that as we have mentioned earlier on, Abiathar was a very unpretentious sort of a person. And yet he remained intensely loyal to David and became David's lifelong friend. He was the fourth in descent from Eli and alone remained alive among the priests after Doeg at the behest of Saul had gone through and slaughtered them all. And he remained with David throughout his life. He remained loyal right throughout David's life until after David's death, Abiathar, that Adonijah's attempt to gain the throne. What a lesson to be learned from Abiathar. Imagine the things that he suffered with David over those years. Certainly we can appreciate when David was raised to the throne and the position and the standing that Abiathar would have had as high priest. But look what he went through with David. The trials, the tribulations, the suffering, the agony, the persecution. He went through it all. And stuck with it all. He stuck closer than a friend than a brother to David. And yet ultimately, what did he do? He picked the wrong one, didn't he? He went against the will of David. What a lesson. What an incredible lesson. And of course, Solomon... I believe out of wisdom and remembering the long, long friendship that there had been between David and Abiathar, instead of killing Abiathar or putting him to death, he banished him. And by that means the priesthood passed to Zadok. So finally here we have in verse 8 tonight that David inquired of Yahweh. And there it all is. That's what we've been waiting for, isn't it? But chapter after chapter, we've been waiting for that. And there it is. David inquired of Yahweh. Make a note of that. Compare chapter 27 verse 1. He didn't do that then. If he had done, things would have been altogether different. And a lot of suffering and trial and tribulation that was unnecessary would have been avoided. And you know that same word is used of Saul in chapter 28 and verse 6. That he inquired of Yahweh. But Saul had no priest. He had no ephod. He had no mediator. And in contrast to Saul, David received an answer. Because David was a man of faith. And so he asked Yahweh the question, Shall I pursue after them? Shall I pursue after this truth? Shall I overtake them? In other words, David refused to collapse in a world of self-pity and defeat. He wasn't going to give up at this particular stage. He was not going to join in the negative attitude of his own men because he had encouraged himself in Yahweh, his God. He had tied himself fast to Yahweh. So now he's going to go where Yahweh wants him to go. What shall I do? Shall I go after them? And Yahweh answers them, Pursue. 
For thou shalt surely overtake them and recover them all. And you don't find that in chapter 27, verses 1 or 2 either. There is no reply from Yahweh in chapter 27, verse 1 and 2, when David made that unwise decision to go to the Philistines. There was no reply from Yahweh because he hadn't been asked. Now he is asked in the right spirit, in the right attitude. And the lesson of faithful submission to the will of Yahweh is here awarded. And so it will be with us if we follow in the spirit that David displays at this particular point in his life.